European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 45, Issue 3. Focus Issue, Interventional Cardiology. By Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Focus on interventional cardiology. The need for quality and transparency of evidence for implantable cardiovascular medical devices. This focus issue on interventional cardiology contains the fast-track clinical research contribution Quality and Transparency of Evidence for Implantable Cardiovascular Medical Devices Assessed by the Core MD Consortium by George Siontis and colleagues from the University of Bern. The authors note that the European Union Medical Device Regulation 2017-745 challenges key stakeholders to follow transparent and rigorous approaches to the clinical evaluation of medical devices. The purpose of this study is a systematic evaluation of published clinical evidence underlying selected high-risk cardiovascular medical devices before and after market access in the European Union CE marking between 2000 and 2021. Pre-specified strategies were applied to identify published studies of prospective design, evaluating 71 high-risk cardiovascular devices in seven different classes. The search time span covered 20 years, 2000 to 2021. Details of study design, patient population, interventions and primary outcomes were summarised and assessed with respect to timing of the corresponding CE mark approval. At least one prospective clinical trial was identified for 70% of the pre-specified devices. Overall, 473 reports of 308 prospectively designed studies were deemed eligible, including 81% prospective non-randomised clinical trials and 19% randomised clinical trials. Pre-registration of the study protocol was available in 49% of studies and 16% had a peer-reviewed publicly available protocol. Device-related adverse events were evaluated in 82% of studies. An outcome adjudication process was reported in 39% of the studies. Sample size was larger for randomised in comparison with non-randomised trials median of 304 versus 100 individuals, P being less than 0.001. No randomised clinical trial published before CE mark approval for any of the devices was identified. Non-randomised clinical trials were predominantly published after the corresponding CE mark approval of the device under evaluation, 89%. Sample sizes were smaller for studies published before than after CE mark approval being less than 0.001. Clinical trials with larger sample sizes, greater than 50 individuals, and those with longer recruitment periods were more likely to be published after CE mark approval and were more frequent during the period 2016 to 2021. Siontis et al. conclude that the quantity and quality of publicly available data from prospective clinical investigations across selected categories of cardiovascular devices before and after CE approval during the period 2000 to 2021 are insufficient. The majority of studies are non-randomised with increased risk of bias 
and performed in small populations without provision of power calculations, and none of the reviewed devices had randomised trial results published prior to CE Mark certification. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Piotr Szymański from the National Institute of Medicine, MSWIA, in Warsaw, Poland, and Rita Redberg from the UCSF Division of Cardiology in San Francisco, California, USA. The authors note that transparency and publication of clinical evidence can help foster innovation. Convergence of global medical device approval processes may lead to improvement in the quality of available evidence while helping to avoid potential harms and be good for patients. Mutual recognition of publicly reported high-quality evidence may speed up the regulatory process, increase patient safety and decrease the number of future recalls, thus decreasing rather than increasing the total cost of marketing of medical devices. The exhaustive and careful review of almost 45,000 records by the core MD investigators shines a light on the pathway to transparency and patient safety and will facilitate such work. The functional assessment of epicardial stenosis plays a key role in planning revascularization procedures. In another fast-track clinical research article entitled Coronary Flow Capacity and Survival Prediction After Revascularization Physiological Basis and Clinical Implications Lance Gould and colleagues from the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas, USA note that stress myocardial perfusion milliliters per minute per gram, and coronary flow reserve, or CFR per pixel, were quantified in approximately 7,000 coronary artery disease, or CAD, subjects using RB82 positron emission tomography, or PET, for coronary flow capacity, or CFC maps, of artery-specific size severity abnormalities, expressed as a percentage of the left ventricle with respective follow-up to define survival probability per decade as a fraction of 1.0. Severely reduced CFC in 6,979 subjects predicted low survival probability that improved by 42% after revascularization compared with no revascularization for comparable severity, P equaling 0.0015. For 283 pre- and post-procedural PET pairs, severely reduced regional CFC-associated survival probability improved heterogeneously after revascularization, P being less than 0.001, more so after bypass surgery than after percutaneous coronary intervention, P being less than 0.001, but normalized in only 5.7%. Non-severe baseline CFC or survival probability did not improve compared with severe CFC, B equaling 0.00001. Observed CFC-associated survival probability after actual revascularization was lower than virtual ideal hypothetical complete post-revascularization survival probability due to residual CAD or failed revascularization, P being less than 0.001, unrelated to gender or microvascular dysfunction. Severely reduced CFC in 2,552 post-revascularization subjects associated with low survival probability 
also improved after repeat revascularization compared with no repeat procedures. P equaling 0.025. The authors conclude that severely reduced CFC and associated observed survival probability improved after first and repeat revascularization compared with no revascularization for comparable CFC severity. Non-severe CFC showed no benefit. Discordance between observed actual and virtual hypothetical post-revascularization survival probability revealed residual CAD or failed revascularization. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Viviane Tacchetti from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Tacchetti concludes by noting that the time has come to move beyond simplistic paradigms of obstructive focal anatomic-driven and flow-limiting regional ischemia-driven strategies for revascularization in chronic coronary disease to incorporate global coronary flow-guided approaches in high-quality randomized clinical trials. To move the field forward, we must ask and rigorously test what this dynamic physiological tool, combined readily with assessments of diffuse atherosclerotic plaque burden and myocardial fibrosis, can potentially tell us about pathophysiology and appropriate patient selection, not only for invasive interventions, but also for novel and increasingly available preventative cardiometabolic therapies. Transcatheter valve implantation plays a key role in the current treatment of heart valve disease. Transcatheter pulmonary valve implantation, or TPVI, is indicated to treat right ventricular outflow tract, or RVOT, dysfunction related to congenital heart disease, or CHD. In a clinical research article entitled Outcomes of Transcatheter Pulmonary Sapien 3 Valve Implantation, an international registry. Sebastian Hascoet and colleagues from the Hospital Clinic de Barcelona in Le Plessis Robinson, France, investigated outcomes of TPVI with the Sapien 3 valve that are insufficiently documented in the Europulms 3 registry of Sapien 3 TPVI. Patient related procedural and follow up outcome data were retrospectively assessed in this observational cohort from 35 centres in 15 countries. Data from 840 consecutive patients treated between 2014 and 2021 at a median age of 29 years were obtained. The most common diagnosis was a conotruncal defect in 70%, with a native or patched RVOT in 51% of all patients. Valve implantation was successful in 98% of patients. Median follow-up was 20 months. Eight patients experienced infective endocarditis. 11 required pulmonary valve replacement with a lower incident for larger valves, P equaling 0.009, and four experienced pulmonary valve thrombosis, including one who died and three who recovered with anticoagulation. Cumulative incidences of complications six years after TPVI were as follows. Infective endocarditis 3.8%, pulmonary valve replacement 8%, and pulmonary valve thrombosis 0.7%. Ascoet et al. conclude that outcomes of Sapien 3 TPVI 
are favourable in patients with CHD, half of whom have native or patched RVOTs. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Jamil Abolhosen from the University of California, Los Angeles in the USA. Abolhosen concludes that the Europulms 3 registry results are encouraging, specifically regarding short and intermediate-term outcomes in a real-world environment and in patients with conduits and bioprosthetic valves. Concerns remain regarding the complication rates and outcomes of Sapien 3 transcatheter pulmonary valve replacement in native RVOT patients. Residual leaks are not infrequent after left atrial appendage occlusion. However, there is still uncertainty regarding their prognostic implications. In an article entitled Residual Leaks Following Percutaneous Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion and Outcomes, a Meta-Analysis. Athanasio Samaras and colleagues from the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece evaluated the impact of residual leaks after left atrial appendage occlusion. A literature search was conducted up to the 19th of February 2023. Residual leaks comprised peri-device leaks, or PDLs, on transesophageal echocardiography, or T, or computed tomography, or CT, as well as left atrial appendage patency on CT. Random effects meta-analyses were performed to assess the clinical impact of residual leaks. Overall, 48 eligible studies, 44 non-randomized stroke observational and 4 randomized studies, including approximately 62,000 patients with atrial fibrillation who underwent left atrial appendage occlusion, were analyzed. Peri-device leak by T was present in 26% of patients. CT-based left atrial appendage patency and PDL were present in 55% and 57% of patients, respectively. T-based PDL, i.e. any reported PDL regardless of its size, was significantly associated with a higher risk of thromboembolism, pooled odds ratio, or POR 2.04, all-cause mortality, POR 1.16, and major bleeding, POR 1.12, compared with no reported PDL. A positive graded association between PDL size and risk of thromboembolism was noted across T cutoffs. Neither left atrial appendage patency nor PDL by CT was associated with thromboembolism. The authors conclude that PDL detected by T is associated with adverse events primarily thromboembolism. Residual leaks detected by CT are more frequent but lack prognostic significance. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Ole de Bakker from the Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark and Philippe Gaul from the Hôpital Jacques Cartier in Massy, France. The authors note that this meta-analysis contributes to a better understanding of the clinical importance and implications of residual leaks after transcatheter LAA closure. T-detected PDLs after LAA closure are associated with adverse clinical events, primarily thromboembolism, and should be avoided or at least kept to an absolute minimum. Moreover, this meta-analysis uncovers that screening for LAA patency at follow-up cardiac CT is not sufficient, 
and that LAA patency at post-procedural cardiac CT is not associated with worse clinical outcomes. This is an important finding as an increased number of sites are nowadays relying on cardiac CT for both pre- and post-procedural LAA imaging. Clearly, more research is warranted to determine the optimal detection method and cutoff values for clinically relevant PDL across different protocols and imaging modalities. Obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or OHCM, is an inherited myocardial disease caused by mutations in genes encoding sarcomere, or sarcomere-related structures, proteins. In a Rapid Communications article entitled Transcoronary Radiofrequency Ablation for Obstructive Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, a Feasibility Study. Shangshu Long and colleagues from the Guozhou Provincial People's Hospital in China enrolled 13 consecutive hospitalized OHCM patients who remained symptomatic in spite of maximally tolerated negative inotropic medications, beta blockers, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Inclusion criteria were defined as a maximal end-diastolic wall thickness of greater than or equal to 15 mm in an asymmetric hypertrophied septum in the short-axis view of transthoracic echocardiography, a resting peak LVOT gradient, or LVOTG, of greater than or equal to 50 mm of mercury, New York Heart Association functional classes 3 to 4, and age greater than or equal to 18 years. The left main coronary artery osteum was engaged with a 6 French suitable guiding catheter, and subsequent contrast echocardiography was performed to identify one or more target septal perforating artery and main branches perfusing the hypertrophic septum. A 0.014-inch coronary guide wire was advanced into the distal segment of the selected septal artery. According to the calibre of the vessel and its main branches, an appropriate size over-the-wire balloon or microcatheter was positioned in the proximal segment of the branch via the guide wire for insulation to prevent damage to non-target coronary arteries. The distal tip 5 to 15 mm of the guide wire was exposed for ablation. The extracorporeal end to the guide wire was connected to a radiofrequency ablation catheter. Finally, unipolar radiofrequency ablation with a power setting of 30 watts and impedance of less than 300 ohms was undertaken until auto cutoff. The procedure was repeated three to five times in the same branch. If an LVOTG reduction of less than 50% was achieved, the next target septal artery was identified and ablated further. Compared with baseline, the invasive and non-invasive LVOTG decreased by 73.0 and 63.3 millimeters of mercury immediately post-procedure. The non-invasive LVOTG decreased by 45 millimeters of mercury pre-discharge and by 56.9 millimeters of mercury after three months, achieving 92.3% technical success and 84.6% clinical success. The issue is also complemented by a discussion forum contribution. In a commentary entitled, Nickel Hypersensitivity as the Cause of Atrial Fibrillation After Patent Foramen Ovale Closure, Fact or Myth, 
Anastasios Apostolos, Constantinos Tutusas, and Constantina Ageli, from the National and Capodistrian University of Athens in Greece, comment on the recent publication, Long-Term Risk of Atrial Fibrillation or Flutter After Transcatheter Patent for Armenavali Closure, a nationwide Danish study, by Christian Waldemar-Skipste from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.